Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. This is Dr. Brandy Skilache, Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm really excited to have with me Eric Garcia. He is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist who's focused on politics and policy and is currently the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent. His first book has just come out on August 3rd, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. I'm really excited. I've actually read it myself. Eric, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brandy. You know, I came across your book in part um, through an online conversation on Twitter, and I have so enjoyed it. And I, I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more to the audience about, about who you are and how you how you came to this subject and approach this topic. Well, I mean, I'm autistic, so I guess I was born. Um, <laughs> uh, as my friend John Marble likes to say, Um but I think the other thing that happened was I didn't want to, in my career, I didn't really want to be somebody who wrote about autism for a long time. I worked at Market Watch. I worked at National Journal. I was an economic correspondent when I started writing about it. And I will, uh, and I was, you know, happy to do that. I was doing what I wanted. I was perfectly happy to do that. What happened was I think that, um, so in, 2015, I was at a party and a friend of mine, um, uh, by the name of Tim Mack, he offered me a drink and he said, uh, and I said, Oh, I don't drink because I'm on the autism spectrum. And he said, Oh, there's a lot of autistic people here in medicine I take doesn't mix with, uh, alcohol. It's like, Oh, there's a lot of autistic people in Washington, DC. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. He's like, you should write something about that. And I was, I was 24, I was 24. Three at the time, I was 24. Uh, mm-hmm. I was 24 at the time, and I thought, oh, you know, when I get better as a journalist, I'll do that. Then what happened was I was at National Journal, um, really happy doing things there. Then the print, they decided to shut down the print edition of the magazine. And so then uh, I pitched this idea to my friend Richard Just, who was the editor of the print magazine. Mm-hmm. He said, well, why should this exist? And I said, kind of, well, I think we focus too much on trying to cure autism and not enough on trying to help autistic people live fulfilling lives. Mm. Now, if you remember, this was in 2015. So if you remember in the beginning of 2015, there was that measles outbreak at Disneyland. Oh, yes. Yes. It is because parent, you know, a bunch of hippie parents wouldn't vaccinate their (laughs) damn kids, you know, Uh, because they're afraid of, they're afraid of, uh, you know, their kids getting getting autism and then from the the vaccine. Se- yeah from the vaccine which is just not true you know no not at all <laughs> you know and then what happened after that is that you know i'm a political reporter and then you know the next thing that i know is donald trump decides to run for president <laughs> and uh you you know he says on the debate stage that autism has become an epidemic oh, he, bl- he blames the vaccines but then the more, you, you know, and part of me was just like, Donald Trump is Donald Trump, you know, uh, you know, then what, right. but, 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 but what happened is afterward, Ben Carson had, who was a pediatric neurosurgeon, had a chance right. to say Trump is full of it. And he 
kind of he kind of dithered and mm-hmm. you know that said to me that you know wow we've had a lot of bad information about autism right <laughs> and you know my feeling was okay if our public officials if our politicians are having bad information about autism what does that mean for the rest of us so i wrote that piece right. it blew up changed up changed my life overnight then uh my agent now, Heather Jackson, suggested I write a book. And then I thought, well, you know, my main argument wasn't that piece. But I was like, well, what does it look like? If we got so much bad information about autism, mm-hmm. that means that we must have a lot of bad policies about autism. And it means that right. we must be really letting down autistic people. So what I did is I just decided to hit the road. I decided okay, yeah. to travel across the country to see what's it like to be autistic across America. Right. Uh, so I went to the Bay Area of California. I went to Pittsburgh. I went to Michigan. I went to Nashville, Tennessee. I went to West Virginia. And I even did some reporting here in Washington, D.C., which is where I live. Uh, and basically just tried to interview autistic people and see what is it like to be autistic in this country. Right. What are the challenges that autistic people face? And what are we not doing? And what can we do to improve people's lives? Yes. yes. And I think that's the, the what are we not doing? And what can we do? Because I feel as though too often we, we, even in social justice circles, we stop at the, what are we not doing without giving people a sense of that there's a way forward, that there's some, that there's ways to improve, improve access, improve understanding, that there's ways forward is, is just as important. Right. Yeah. Like, so I, 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 I was really kind of compelled to write this because of, um, because like I was just like, well, you know, you know, I'm a political reporter by trade, you know, and I think I could have, you know, and people have said this to me that like I potentially could have, you know, written a piece, you know, written a book about, uh, you, you know, just a more of a straight memoirish kind of thing, you know, sure, like, you know, maybe I would have sold more copies of the book, you know, maybe I would have, you know, but I, my feeling was my story is just my story, and I'm a political journalist. And I felt that, like, you know, I want to know how is it possible that I was able to succeed? And then also, how is it possible that so many autistic people weren't able to succeed? And what happened when they didn't have the same resources as I did? What happens when that's the case? Because one of the things after that piece, after that piece came out, one of the things that fascinated me was how many autistic people I met across the country. And they, I hope this comes out in the book that autistic people are just fantastic people. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, like, I thought, I think that they're amazing. And I, and I think what, what I wanted to know is that like, there are smarter autistic people than I am. There are harder working autistic people than I am. There are kinder autistic people than I am. But I was, but you know, that doesn't necessarily, uh, but you know, at the, so, so my feeling was, wow, you know, like, how was I able to succeed and how were those people, how, and mm-hmm. why did those people languish? Like, what happened? Right. right so right. My, my impulse was to place myself in the larger tapestry of everything rather than just tell my own story and like, oh, look at me, you know? Yeah. No, I get that completely. Well, partly, I mean, full disclosure, I am myself, I'm undiagnosed because yeah. I didn't realize this till I was an adult, but I actually am also autistic. And yeah. there's, you know, and as a child being told so often, right, that yeah. um, I was to not be weird. Don't be weird. You know, don't yeah. show you're weird to people. And the, my only 
frame of reference for autism was Rain Man. Yeah. The movie, you know, and so of course my parents, I, I watched that. And if you're told that's, if you yourself, even an autistic person are told that's autism, of course, you're going to think, well, that's not what I, I don't want to tell the world about that. You know, I don't want to identify with that because the, the representation is so poor. Yeah, exactly. I've spent a lot of time dragging Rain Man, so I don't want to, <laughs> you, you know, like, but like my, my, my general beef with it is this idea that we don't really get much of Raymond's inner world. Or how he feels and things. It's almost entirely through Tom Cruise's lens, right? <laughs> uh, which is one reason I, I I hate that movie so much. You know, I, I really kind of have a problem with the fact that Rain Man is uh, that Tom Cruise's character only really cares about his brother when he's you know monetarily valuable. You know, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so 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 I, I, and I and I mean I think it also had a very very narrow perspective. I mean the movie ends with him being institutionalized and that being the humane thing. You know, right? Yeah, and I think that the spectrum nature of of what it's like to be autistic is. I, I have many friends who have autism who didn't know they had autism. Until, I didn't know again. Yeah. I was unaware for a long time. I just thought you know I was like well I'm I clearly look at things a little differently. Um and yeah. I learn to think of it as a positive. I learned to think of myself and my way of approaching the world as a positive, as, yeah. a, as a superpower almost. But there's many people for whom their their experiences, they're told that their perspective on the world is not a superpower and is not yeah. a good thing. Yeah, yeah. they're told that they're, you know, they're, they're told that they're a burden or told that they're the cause for a lot of sorrow for their parents or they're the cause of a lot of grief for their parents or they're told that they're uh, that they're, you know, they're the reason for their parents' divorce, which statistically it just isn't true. And like, I think the denouement of the movie, Rayman, like, if we could just go back to it a little bit, the reason why it's so horrendous is not because Raymond being disabled is so bad. It's the fact that we just, tr- it's the fact that soci- as societally, we treat people we consider quote unquote severely disabled as the only thing we should do is, is institutionalize them right. or that's the compassionate humane thing. Mm-hmm. So if you're told that's your, if you're told that you're autistic and that's your fate, then of course you're not going to want to accept this. No, you know, well, uh, it's not, yeah. It so colors uh, policy. It, co- like, yeah. it doesn't mean it, trust me. I am sure that there are people in politics, in policy right now, who have autism, but who are not? Oh necessary. yeah, no, I have. I have a, we'll, talk, we'll talk about this. Like, I, I it's not my job to armchair diagnose, but like, there are a few times. You know, I'm when I, I'm on Capitol Hill a lot of the time, and there are a few times where, like, I, when I turn off my recorder, I'm like, are they? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I honestly, part of my own diagnosis was uh, a friend of mine who is autistic and who had had the support that autistic people can receive if they have a diagnosis yeah. all through her life. We sat down to lunch one day and she said, so really, you know, I'm just curious, how do you feel about being blah, blah, blah in your career and autistic? And I was, I was like, what I not. And she goes, <laughs> Oh, Oh, you are. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, like that's also kind of the thing is that it's kind of like, it kind of reminds me of, you know, like I grew up and I still am, you, you know, I was raised in a very good devout Christian household, very Protestant household. And my family had converted from Catholicism to Protestantism before I was born. And I'm still a Christian, a bad one at it. But like, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of how pro- uh, the old days of autism when it was only 
parents or when it was only diagnostics or clinicians could do it. Kind of reminds me of the Catholic Church that there was this priesthood that can only diagnose it. <laughs> but then I almost feel like autistics amongst ourselves were kind of like Protestants. Like we can almost, like we can almost, we kind of have a sense of ourselves in the sense, you know, you know, the idea of a sense of fidelium. Like, like we can, like we can diagnose ourselves and we can recognize and we can track in each other. Cause like what happened is like one time I was, I was hanging out with a friend of mine and I was like, I was like, are you idiot? Cause I'm, she wasn't autistic, but she was ADHD. And I was like, is she ADHD? And then like, I was like, and then like I said, and then I said, Hey, are you, are you ADHD? She's like, yeah, I am. I'm diagnosed. And I was like, I knew it. You know, um, <laughs> you know, you, you know, we do have this sense for it. And it's like, it reminds me of like, you know, to your point, it's like one guy I interviewed in the book, his name is John Marble. And if you've read the book, you know, I just, I think John Marble is just fantastic, but like he was in denial for a long time. He didn't recognize, think that he was autistic. And then finally, when he was spinning out of work and having a lot of the troubles that autistic people do in work, he was, um, you know, he was he was kind of in denial about it until Ari Neman, who was, you know, the founder of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, you know, took him to a coffee shop and then took him back to his office and saw, see, you know, there's a difference in sensory processing. So, like, yeah. we do, as a tribe, we do kind of have this understanding. Mm -hmm. And that understanding can provide clarity a lot of the time. As with other disabilities, you know, there's a real, there, oh, it's very frustrating. It's where we talk a lot about disability rights here at Medical Humanities. The ways in which disabled people are not seen as full people is that somehow yeah. their lives are less or, or yeah. you know, because they're non-quote-unquote normative, by the way, might even be a minority category to be normative, um, right. they're seen as less and, and that, that their yeah. lives are not as full that people are always surprised to find out like that they're in relationships or that they're married or have children and that shocks people that they're sexually active. That, oh, but you're disabled. Well, well, yeah, yes, yeah, you know, I'm just a human being. But yeah, yeah. Well, like to that point about sexually active, like the idea that autistic people can't be sexual is so weird to me because some of the horniest people I know are autistic. Um, <laughs> well, don't you think it's partly that that idea people have as though autistic people are unemotional or they don't have yeah that they're unfeeling is, or they're unempathetic right, which is not true <laughs> which is just not true yeah like i may you know autistic people may not be able to understand immediately what that they made somebody feel something or feel away but that did but once you recognize it that then you then you immediately connect with that but like i think even like you know even if you aren't you know able to find work or get married or have kids or things like that even if you do require around the clock 24 7 care like i will say this from the top of my lungs you still deserve your humanity mm -hmm. and like one reason why so many parent bloggers bug me is that they get is they feel that they almost have this right to talk about their kids in right. very graphic right. ways that you would never talk about your other children because it's almost this assumption that they're never going to read it but like that still hurts and that still does you know even autistic people with intellectual disabilities or non-speaking autistic people or any of those types of people, they still can understand and they still do. One thing that I've learned, you know, being a former kid and being an adult is kids can track these things and how you view them and perceive them. And that does affect them. And even then, you, even if they don't understand that they're being broadcast to the world, they still are human beings. They still deserve their dignity and they still just, they don't deserve, they deserve not to be exploited.
Right. You know, well, and so. their personhood. They are, yeah. you know, their personhood. They, they have their, uh, and, it, you know, to go back to your point earlier about Disney World, about the measles outbreak or Disneyland, um, the, the concept that being autistic is worse than potentially dying from measles. Yeah, yeah. Really upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, you know, and there, there had been parents in the past who said that autism is worse than, like, cancer or death or things like that. But you're you're implicitly saying when you're an anti-vaxxer about autism that you'd rather your kid get sick from measles and die than be autistic. Which is, uh, it's just, to, and it also, it, it creates this impression that autism is a kind of blight. The disability itself is some sort yeah, of blight exactly. to be hidden away, to be denied, to be... Uh, and again, I mean, I have been encouraged. I, You're encouraged in your life. Well, don't tell people about this because yeah. you will not have the same opportunities. And we, we get to a place of accepting that when we shouldn't accept that. We shouldn't accept that we have to lie. Right. About ability in order to be accepted you know that's that's right you need to goes, change that yeah and it goes to like you know like the, you know the it, it leads to this double-edged sword because on one end like the only way we're ever going to get anybody to ever kind of accept autistic people is through increasing visibility and showing that mm-hmm. we're all affected by autism uh whether you have a loved one who is or whether you are yourself um you have you have you know somebody who's autistic but on the other end it comes at a great price for that person so one person i interviewed in the book uh, her name is marcel champy she just said point blank that um she's always regretted disclosing that she was autistic in her workplaces mm. because immediately it leads to, leads to prejudgment or things like that so it's one of those really tough things because like i would never tell someone and i still don't tell anybody like you have to disclose, you know, to, to, for the cause, you know, like, uh, you, you know, because like that's people's livelihoods. And I don't really know, I'll, I'll say it. I don't really know the right answer. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what is the right solution to ensure that we can have acceptance and we can show that autistic people can work in any sector. Um, if they want to and if they can and you know the ones who don't you know they they should also be accepted as well but like on the other end i don't know how to you know like i know that that comes at a great cost for the employee you know right i feel that there's a real connection to be made here and and you've in fact make this connection in your book between coming out as autistic and coming out as gender non-conforming as well because i think that there's a similar sense you have to decide if you're going to live who you tell and what the consequences might be. And I think we are yeah. at a period where that's being lauded. Like, yes, please do, you know, say who you are, come out as trans or come out as these other non-conforming things. Um, and that is wonderful. And we do celebrate it, but there are people for whom that is something that they they fear to do, that, that it might be dangerous for them to do. And so I think we have to honor that too, that there's a, there's two edges to this and, me personally being kind of, I sort of have a foot in both in both camps a little bit and in neither. Um, it, it's liminal spaces are confusing. It's hard to know how to navigate them. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, like, I mean, it, you know, you know, look, I live, I'm a college educated got male who lives in a big city that's, you know, that likes to think it see itself as, as open-minded and liberal. But, 
you know, there are a lot of people in smaller towns where autism may not be as understood or where there might not be as much information about it. In the same way, like, you know, the same thing could be said for queer communities. Like, and I say this as a boring, straight, cis hetero <laughs> guy. Like, I understand, like, I like, uh, you, you know, I understand why you wouldn't want, I understand why my queer friends or my gay friends wouldn't want to come out in their hometown but they might be more comfortable saying who they are in a big city or in a better community mm -hmm. in the same way i can understand why some people wouldn't want to disclose that they're autistic uh or they or they can't you know and then of course you know uh but like you know and then there are some people who just can't you know mask that they're autistic because they right. can't speak or they have you know and then they have that leads to even more stigma they can't you know right. they can't even hide it and they and that opens them up to all different kinds of judgment and a lot of other things, you know, that, that, that aren't, you know, that aren't that positive, you know, yeah. uh, you know, it's in a lot of other judgments. So it's, so it's, so, 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 so it's really, the reality is we, we need to change our ability to, we, we need, the world needs to change, right? What we, yeah. you need to create more safe spaces rather than putting the onus on the person to make, you know, uh, it shouldn't always be, on the head of the autistic person or the disabled person or whatever minority to do all the educating. You know, it shouldn't always be their job to have to educate everyone else. We need to get to a place where that education is happening and where those safe spaces are being created and expanded writ large. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that one of the things it's almost like, you know, one, one of the things like, I think because I grew up in a really religious culture, like I remember going to church and when people would go up to the altar call, you know, for the first time it gets saved or whatever, you would get like pamphlets and you would get like all these different things like, welcome to the church. There's nothing like that for when you join the autistic community, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no you know, parade, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, it's, so, so it's, so like, it, but it, but it puts a lot on autistic people, you know, and it puts a lot on, um, it puts a lot on the community and it puts a lot on the families and the loved ones to have to kind of navigate this and kind of advocate for, it. I mean, even the fact that uh, when you go to an IEP, you're often fighting in the school district to mm -hmm. get that little scintilla of money because it's never been fully funded. You know, you're it's, it's framed as you versus the school rather than the school just having those, things ready uh, at the ready right. same thing with yes. employers same thing with uh same thing with any space yeah i agree and i i think that so one of the just to close up here today i want to talk a little bit about the the title because i think this all comes down to this phrase it's a really powerful phrase the the title is we're not broken and i i just wanted to ask you so how did you arrive on that because i do feel like so much hinges on that idea i can't take credit for that actually <laughs> um my when i was writing that original original national journal piece uh andy Kohler came up with the headline i'm not broken which was the the name of the original piece and then we're not broken is the, is that but i think it goes to this fundamental idea that Disabled people aren't failed ver and autistic people aren't failed versions of normal. And I think that for so long, because there's been so much misunderstanding about autism and any other type of neurodivergence, that there's this feeling that there's this impulse to fix them. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what led to that. That's what leads to autistic people are still being, are, you know, there's a place in Massachusetts, the Judge Rottenberg Center, that still shocks autistic people today. Use a shock therapy on them. Um, that's the rationale for a lot of times putting people through ABA and forcing them to kind of conform to act more like one of the underlying things about ABA is to make autistic people act more like neurotypicals, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the almost a, a lot of the ways we approach autism are are predicated or they hinge on making autistic people act more normal or neurotypical instead of helping them live more fulfilling lives and and, and finding ways to make the world more amenable to them and i think that's what i that's what i want to argue is that even if you do have, and that's is that and I think I, I want to say this and I want to be very clear. So, 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 like, excuse this little tangent here. A lot of times when I say these things, autistic people—I mean, uh, parents of autistic people—think that I'm saying autism is all wonderful, or that I'm erasing the real challenges that autistic people have, or the real impairments. I'm the first person to say autism is a disability, just like deafness, just like blindness, just like using a wheelchair. And they—I I don't deny that they come with real challenges and real impairments. But let's focus on those things. Let's focus on the things that impair people. And let's also focus on the, on how do we as a world disable autistic people? Because if you did, if we didn't have wheelchair ramps or curb cuts, being in a wheelchair would suck, you know? And if we didn't have braille, you know, being blind would be much harder. And if we didn't have ASL, being deaf would be much harder. But that's not to say that there still aren't challenges and difficulties with them, but we do work to make things better for them. Right, I think that what right. I try to say is that just because you have significant challenges or just because you may need more support or you may need more aid or you may need 24-hour around-the-clock care, that doesn't mean you yourself are a failed human being. or fail- right. It means that you just have a different operating system. Yes, yes. No, I think that's, that is wonderful. And I, I like this this way of talking about all people and our uniqueness uh, is something yeah. that we're a big fan here because, of course, we're also very pro-LGBT here as yeah. well. And, you know, I think um, it's the concept that humans are persons. They're, they're, they're not statistics. They're not, you know, yeah. something to be shunted away from the public. I mean, in a way, uh, asking people to behave normative is is it's it's sort of a, a version of institutionalizing them, right? You're not it, taking them away from the public. A... I hadn't thought of it that way, <laughs> but it's but almost yeah, like it is. It's like you're internalizing it's, the institution. You're internalizing the the. You're being forced to conform and abide by the rules, just like you would at an, in an institution, and in ways that restrict and limit your freedom. I hadn't thought of that. Thought of it that way, but wow! <laughs> well, wow, but you know, Jesus, also- Brandy. <laughs> Isn't it also a way of 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 height of of erasing too? You know, it is. It is. We want to erase this. Either take it out of our sight, or dress you up in such a way that you don't appear to be different. And yeah, like I mean, in the old days, in the old days, like you know, parents were include were encouraged to remove photos of their kids. You know, yeah, Uh, and that's horrifying. It's absolutely it's horrifying. horrifying. yeah. Representation. Representation is a big part of how we end up with accessibility, you know? Yeah. And, and like, this, this is the argument I make for like, you know, home and community based services and care is that like, if you live in the community, if, if an autistic person, regardless of their support needs, lives in the community, then it no longer becomes something we can relegate to the shadows or something we can relegate to, you know, this person belongs in an institution. Then it becomes a social responsibility for everyone. 
mm-hmm. and it becomes, you know, it's no longer, this person's a part of the community and therefore they're, a, they become a pillar of the community. And what happens when you're part of the community, then the community changes so that you're more, that things become easier for that person in the mm-hmm. community. And then it becomes everybody's social, you know, just like how in my community, I, I'm socially obligated to my neighbors. You become socially obligated to the autistic person and they become socially obligated to, to the rest of the community. So it becomes this mutually reinforcing thing. So that's the argument that I make a lot of times is that when you do that, it becomes everybody's responsibility. And I think that's much, that's a much better way of looking at disability than it is. Uh, then you know, sending some way to, someone away right, to an institution. Right. Yeah. Um, I will. I will just mention here, uh, Alice Wong, who comes on our podcast periodically. She has the disability disability visibility project. I, I love Alice great. so much. She is so great, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So yes. Okay. Well, I this was wonderful. I know we have to sign off, though. I feel like we could go on talking. Well, for, we could go on for. Um, we'll go yeah. on for hours. <laughs> But thank you to all of our listeners. This has been a fabulous conversation. Uh, speaking of accessibility, the transcripts are always available on our blog, which will attend the uh, the podcast link, which can be found on SoundCloud. Thank you once again for joining Medical Humanities. Thank you, Eric, also for being part of our show today. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to all for being part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore bmj.